Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us today. Well, if you have a job and you have kids, you know that one impacts the other. Everything needs to be scheduled. There can be feelings that you're not giving enough to one or the other. But it's not just logistics. Our work takes up a lot of our life and it impacts our emotions and that impacts our life outside work and outside our families. And it may be a bigger impact than we think. Well, my guest today has done a lot of work around the way that parents' experiences at work impact their kids. Her name is Maureen Perry Jenkins, and she's a professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's also the author of a book called Work Matters that covers this topic. I had a great conversation with Maureen about the way that work impacts families and as well what organizations and specifically managers can do to make sure the impacts are not negative for their own sake. Because people who are stressed out about one part of their lives are probably not bringing the best to their work either. It really was a thought-provoking look at things. Please stay with us to hear the conversation. job affecting your kids more than you know. To talk about that, I'm joined by Maureen Perry Jenkins. She's professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she's the author of the book Work Matters. Hi, Maureen. Thanks so much for being here today. Welcome. Thank you. Well, it's a fascinating topic because a lot of us have kids. A lot of managers are dealing with people who have kids. What made you interested in it? What in your career brought you to this topic? Um, Because I think when we think about child development, we think about the most proximal sources that shape their development, which is their parents or their teachers. And in fact, these these factors outside, such as work, have a tremendous impact on child development. And I think we we need to know that to own it as a society. Absolutely. So this is a very comprehensive study you did. Give us an idea of what it included. So this study was funded by NIH. It was a 10-year longitudinal study. um, And we followed um, over 370 families from pregnancy to their children entering the first grade and looked at how work conditions, I was particularly interested in work conditions of parents in the first year of children's development during infancy. You know, it's a critical developmental period. And we were looking at how all aspects of work, both policies and leave policies and sick times, but also kind of what happens on the job, relationships on the job, support on the job, and how all those experiences ended up shaping both parents' mental health and well-being and then their kids' development. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpick here, but if you could summarize it, what was the finding that you found most startling or most important? I think the finding was that that I'd like, I think we need to spend some time thinking about is a lot of what we do for parents and the way we try and support parents around work is time away from work. So Mm -hmm. we fight for leave time and we fight for sick time and we fight flexibility and all of those things absolutely matter. But the bottom line is most of us spend 40 or 50 hours a week at a job. And that job shapes who we are, better or for worse. And what happens at that job day in and day out, it's transmitted to our kids day in and day out and has long-term implications for kids' development. And I think, you know, on any given day, any of us who are parents, I am one, have, you have a bad day, you come home, you checked out, maybe let them watch TV too long, you do it, all these things that you don't feel good about, but you do. And any, you know, that randomly happening is just what happens in life. But if that's the pattern every day, 
you know, day after day, week after week. That's when you start seeing these sort of longer term developmental outcomes. Well, let's talk about the infancy part because, like, you know, I almost think of infancy as it's almost just logistical, mechanical, but you're saying mood impacts that too? Oh, goodness. Uh, infancy, you know, and if you look at brain development in that first year, is the, the most growth in brain development you'll have in your whole lifetime. Every neuron, every circuit, all of that is happening in the first year. And we know that sort of warmth, engaged, connected parenting makes that skyrocket, makes those neurons and, and developments sort of take off. And so that's why I focus so much on that first year, because I think there are some folks that are like, well, if they're sleeping and if they're, you know, everything's fine. The engagement, the warmth, the connection is critical. And if you have a parent who's coming home from work, what we saw more often than sort of real negative interactions was just a sort of a withdrawal, sort of coming home and not checking in, not sitting in front of the TV, having a drink, sort of completely checking out. And that kind of lack of sort of lack of behavior actually is what the risk factor is. Lack of warmth, lack of connection. I don't know if you want to get into this topic, but I'm going to say I'm, I'm here in Canada and our norm is to get about a year off when you have a baby. And it's the norm a lot of places to have a fairly long leave. Are you saying it is better to have longer leaves or does it matter if you do it properly? I'm saying it absolutely matters to have longer leave. Our data in the United States is really hard because a long, we don't, first of all, we don't have paid leave and you know some states do, some states don't now. In our study, when we were doing it, there was no paid leave in any state. And women were going back to work two weeks, three weeks, four weeks after having a child. They haven't even physically recovered, never mind emotionally or mentally recovered. Um, and so the data, like when we try to compare what's happening when we have leave in the United States to other countries, it's our long leave is a short leave in another country, right? 12 weeks is considered long here, whereas our neighbors like you or across the pond are you know, having a year to two years leave. So I think the natural experiment is sort of starting to play out. And what's happened, if you look at the data on children in the U.S., all of our data on our cognitive outcomes, our social outcomes is going down. We're one of the richest countries in the world and our kids are continuing to do worse. And I'm thinking this is one of the reasons. Interesting. Now, you didn't just look at moms, though. You looked at dads, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think we tend, you know, this whole literature on child development is just so mother focused. And, you know, especially in dual learner families where both people are out there, um, I was really curious. And dads tend to be actually more involved in dual learner families um, than because there's just moms are out there and dads are there. This needs to happen. A lot of our families were shift work. So dad would do one shift and mom would do the other shift. Um, and our data on dads was as compelling as our data on moms. So dads who had good work felt good about their work, felt empowered by their work, came home, were more engaged with their children, interacted more positively, were more warm with their children than those who did not. So the long-term effects, we had this big fancy statistical model in the book, but basically showed both mothers and fathers had equal effects on kids' social development in the first grade. That's interesting. Can you give me any examples of this, of men who you know were dealing better than others? Oh, yes. So we had some men who you know, first of all, didn't even tell their bosses they were having a child. I mean, it was like, I don't want work to know anything about me. I want nothing, you know, work is sort of separate from that and would, um, and because of that, and because of their negativity about work, would come home and, and really check out. That was what I saw most with dads, not so partial negative behavior, though there was some of that. It was more just like, I can't handle this crying baby. I can't, ha- you know, just, I, I'm overdone, I'm overstressed and I can't do it. In contrast, we had dads who, when they became a father, all of a sudden this light went off. Um, and 
they got more energized, not only at work, especially if they had good work, but came home and weren't more energized with their kids. So who are a number of dads who were miserable at their work once they had a child started making different decisions? Like I have to be a role model. I need my child to to, to not, I don't want to have my life be drudgery and have that be the model for my child. And some of them switched jobs. Some of them went and tried to get promotions. Like it worked for men around, around providing is a huge issue. So it's like, how am I a good provider and how am I taking care of my child? And I think it translated in both negative and positive ways to sort of their interaction. As I said, and there's really specific examples in the book about what about what makes work good mm-hmm. um, and what makes work bad for individuals in terms of affecting their mental health and affecting their kids. We talk about infancy. As kids get older, how do their parents' jobs impact things? So we do have, you know, concurrent data and sort of what's going on at work and what's going on at home. And the, the most direct and obvious way is work limits your time. So when you come home in terms of how you're engaged with your child, when you do have the time is the critical variable. And there is truth to this quality versus quantity. So um, too much work, you know, over 60 hours, for example, or over 55 hours is problematic. Right. So that that's one thing. And, but in general, work is not negatively related to kid outcomes until people get really, really high on hours. What's much more related is this process of spillover. You know, so I have a lousy day at work and that spills over into home. And what many parents will say, I'm able to separate when I go home, works at work, I'm at home, I don't let work. Oh, and, and I know I have said, had that same mantra. The data would say that it's actually not. Um, it gets transmitted in multiple ways. There's some folks who've been looking at spillover of cortisol. So parents who have high levels of cortisol, high levels of sort of stress reactivity, even if they're thinking they're behaving in a certain way, gets that gets transmitted to sort of kids' stress levels. So what companies might say is, I can't fix everything. If you've got issues with your kids, you know, yeah. there's only so much we can do. But right. I have to think it works both ways. If you are stressed out with your kids, if you're having problems with them, it's not really doing anything good for your work. So there's got to be a productivity impact that way too. Of course. I mean, the argument, the return on investment argument, I many folks have made. I, and I didn't feel like I needed to make that argument. There's lots of data saying when people feel, you know, family spills over into work life. And so employers do have some um, responsibility to be sort of helping their employees sort of so when they come to work, they can be productive and they can focus and they're not getting distracted and they're not feeling bad about themselves. Um, I think that return on investment argument, even though it's been made a lot, it doesn't seem to have changed anything. Um, and I, I have also in my conversations with CEOs and um, employers also sort of appealed to just this sort of moral social obligation that all of us have for this next generation. It's not just, you know, sort of the American ideal sometimes is so individualized. I'm responsible for my kid and that's what I'm going to do as opposed to kind of all responsible for all kids. Our childcare system, our leave system is on us. We've made the decision to not allow that for families. We obviously don't value parenting enough and children enough to say we as a society have an obligation to that. And interestingly, when I have these conversations with CEOs, I'm finding that the ones, the older ones are much more open to this than the younger ones. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I know. And I think part of it is that, you know, as you get old, you get a little more perspective on what's important in life. Maybe you become a grandparent. Maybe you're starting to think about generativity and you're like, was it worth it working 80 hours a week? Like, what's my relationship like with my kids? What's my relationship like with my grandchildren? You know, what did I miss? And what maybe could we have lessened a little bit? And when people are going to work for a really long time, how, how hard would it be to give them six months to a year, just care for our next generation. Those have been very interesting arguments that, you know, the return on investment argument, they've all had, they all know, they know it decreases productivity, but it's kind of 
ho-hum almost. It's like, it, it doesn't, it's not something they're measuring or translating. Whereas I think this bigger, like, who are we as a society argument has been very interesting. You know, I think it's easier to just grant leave than it is to implement good management day to day. How do you do that if you're trying to, you know, encourage management where people feel empowered? Yes. You know, it's, it's actually, I have lots and lots of examples in the book. And there's some really interesting data that it's like not one big policy or one big thing. It's the accumulation of a number of small things that create climate. So, for example, I had, you know, one mom who was pregnant and was working at a, a store where she was not allowed to sit down. You're supposed to be on your feet all the time. And her boss was just like, here's sit down whenever you need to sit down. To. Right. That seems just like a humane, nice thing to do for your employee. Right. That for her, like she's like the rulers, you're not supposed to sit down. And he let me sit down and he's taking care of me. Just the goodwill from that one little act and her loyalty to this guy because of that. And then things, you know, I, what I've learned is that employees know the most about what would make their life better. You know, they, the majority want to do their job. They want to do it well, but they also know what kinds of things would make it easier to do both. But, but employees just don't ask. You know, so I worked with this one group of women who worked um, in at a, a meat packing company, actually, and they had mandatory overtimes. So, so you would never know on any given day, your boss might say, yeah, it's four o'clock, you need to stay till six because we have this thing to go up. And then I imagine you have a child, you have to pick up, like, what are you supposed to do? So this, the employees were really upset about this. So they, they, I went in as a consultant um, and I said, what would you all propose? You know, we know these, the, the employer has this pressure on them. You have this pressure. What? And they were like, We'll just pick our day. Mondays will all be the day. If there's overtime on Monday, I'll do Monday. Susie will do Tuesdays, but whatever we'll do Wednesdays. So we can prepare. So on that day, we know we'll have extra time if we need it. And interesting, which sounds just like a real no-brainer solution, right? The boss was kind of like, oh, I'm not sure. I was like, all right, we'll pilot it. Let's just pilot it. We'll do it for, for three months, see if it works. If it doesn't work, we'll go back to the drawing board. And of course it worked because the employees came up with it and they wanted it to work. So it worked. So Part of this requires conversations between supervisors and employers to ask, you know, what are the small things that would make a difference, which seem, you know, and some of my co colleagues will some say you're putting band-aids on really big problems. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I mean, we do need big solutions like paid leave and, and you know, flex time. Those aren't going to happen tomorrow. Um, and I also know from our data that these increasingly, what we might call small things, add up and understanding what those could possibly be for your workers is not hard to do and actually not all that expensive. So that's the argument I make. Now you did the study on low-income workers. Are there like broad implications? Do you think it's very different for people who work at different income levels? I think you know, obviously the main difference is the stress of resources is less, right? So you have more money, you can probably afford better childcare. So that kind of stress is diminished, but there's other kinds of stress. There's you know, how many, who, how many hours is that person working and how many hours do I have to be to make it to get to the next promote? It's a, it's a different set of problems. I think the data, and there's lots of data on higher income and professional workers and, and spillover from, from work uh, to, to kids. I think it's very hard for parents to conceive of their work as something that's could change, make their parenting and make their kids better. Um, higher income workers do think about that more. I've seen far more higher income workers, making primarily women, making the decision like, I can no longer do the 60 to 70 hour job. I just can't. Both of us can't be doing that and, and, and have a child. So that, that sort of stepping off the track, which tons have been written about this, um, is still actually a huge part of what's happening and, and the ways that parents are coping. 
If you're an individual who's working in a company that is not really helping you be a good parent, is there anything you can do? Should you just quit? Or, you know, are there coping mechanisms? I mean, the bottom line is most people can't just quit, right? So um, I think there are, I would say in the majority of situations where where I've seen change happen, either employees organize, and there's this whole literature on whether you should have unions and whether you should organize. But there's other ways for employees to organize um, around specific topics. So when I was going in and doing work um, uh, in, in, in certain different kinds of, it's hard because low-wage work is so different depending upon the work that folks are doing. Um, but I would say, what would make a difference here? What kinds of things would matter? And many of them would be saying the same thing, but none of them would talk to each other. And I would say, well, could you make a proposal? Like, could you make a proposal? And my advice was always a pilot. Just propose a pilot. Like, we want to try something that we think will make us more productive, make this better, and we'll be able to get home when we need to get home or something like that. Um, employers often get nervous about that because they do think it's sort of unionizing behavior. But actually, it's often a way to avoid. You know, if you start listening at that level, then, I'll, you know, if the fear is they're going to unionize, which is not a bad thing in my mind. but um, that. I think the approach by many employers is to limit that kind of communication because it worries. When in fact, it's the thing that creates better loyalty and better return on investment based on the data. So we're at a point, Maureen, where we're changing a lot of things in the workforce. Remote work, which doesn't work for everyone, obviously, is becoming more common. Uh, we are changing some of the, the older patterns. Does this make you hopeful or do you think it'll make really not that much difference because it comes down to other things? Uh, it does make me hopeful to a certain extent because it's forced us all to do things we said we would never be able to do, like never, right? And all of a sudden, we did it. So it makes many things seem less impossible that we've said have always been impossible. Um, I worry because there's inequities in the way, as we know, you know, the pandemic played out and who it hit hardest and who um, who can who's allowed or who has jobs that they actually can work from home versus it's just not a possibility given the kind of you know service occupations or healthcare occupations which is where a lot of low wage workers are. Um, I also think what the pandemic did was expose huge gender inequities in work. Um, so even when folks were both working from home with children, the amount of family labor for women went through the roof and men's labor went down. While everybody's home. So that, you know, it just exposed kind of the inequities that are still there in many ways in terms of gender, in terms of class that we need to think about. But I'm a glass half full kind of person. And I think that, I think that what we accomplished in COVID, what people, how people pivoted, how people changed, how jobs changed was remarkable. Um, but I think it also pointed out with my psychologist hat that mental health has now become sort of the number one crisis. And I think part of that is because of the isolation that we're recovering from COVID, but it's also still there for many folks. It's been very hard for folks to walk back into social settings again. And, and, and I think we've not dealt with that nearly enough. And I think if people, I've worked with folks who will come, you know, I was in work hours around people and it was actually felt good. You know, I, had, I didn't want to go. I was really nervous about going, but afterwards it's that we've, we've I, Totally underestimated, I think, the impact of community and work as a community. Interesting times. Maureen, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. Maureen Perry Jenkins is the author of the book, Work Matters. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Maureen and her work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at, at @relentlesseco. 
Now, if you did like this conversation about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll really help people to find us. It will help us continue these conversations. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.